You're listening to Talk Daredevil, the official podcast of the Save Daredevil campaign. Welcome to another episode of Talk Daredevil, where we are going to talk about many of the supporting characters who make up the show. I'm Christine, and joining me today are... Hi, I'm Christina. And I'm Sam. Hi, welcome, guys. Um, so today we are going to talk about um, some of the um, the characters in, in Matt's life. And we should mention that just last week, there was an episode about Matt's love life. So if we maybe don't spend as much time on some of the sort of loves of Matt's life in that context with this episode, uh, we will still sort of mention them. But uh, if you want to listen to all the details about the different women in Matt's life, you can uh, listen to that episode. But what we wanted to do is sort of uh, just kind of look at the the core characters around Matt. And some of them are, of course, more related to Daredevil, the Daredevil side of things, the Matt side of things, uh, how they challenge Matt, what they mean to him, and and also a little bit about their own arcs. Before we kind of get into the ones we wanted to talk about, we should mention maybe the ones we're not going to spend that much time on, but, you know, kind of need like a maybe an honorable mention because there's so many interesting characters in this show. You know, we have everything from Ellison, we have Brett Mahoney, we have Ray Nadine, we have Marcy, of course, who grows in importance as the show goes on that we're really not uh, going to mention much because there are, there are just so many of them that we can't fit them all into a sort of a 45 or 50 minute episode. So we wanted to maybe focus on uh, some of the different groups of characters around Matt slash Daredevil. And uh, we're thinking of looking at maybe his friends, his sort of the mentor characters, kind of the uh, the frenemy characters that we are introduced to, especially in season two, and and some of the um, enemies uh, that Matt and Daredevil more prominently makes along the way. So let's start with one of the uh, most prominent characters in the show and in the comics, Foggy Nelson. Yay! I love Foggy Nelson. I've 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 actually been thinking about Foggy a lot ever since I knew we were going to be doing this topic. I've been thinking about how Foggy is really the center of the little family that Matt and Karen and Foggy formed. And I've been thinking about how he is always there to give that kind of almost familial support to both of them. Yeah, he's had his moments where he's like, I'm off of this. I I can't handle this. But in general, out of all the characters, he is the one that is the most solid and the most steady. And mm-hmm. he's kind of the rock in that circle of friends. And I was like, I wonder why. And I, I was thinking about that. And then it kind of hit me that in season three, we find out why. It's because out of all the characters on this show, and I'm even talking about including the villains, including Fisk and including Dex and even Electra, Karen, and Matt, Foggy is the only one who has a loving, supportive family pretty much free of drama. We meet Foggy's family in season three, and we meet mom and dad and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews, and they're not perfect. You know, he definitely has some issues with Theo. You could argue that those issues are completely warranted and kind of normal. But I think the reason Foggy is so good at providing that kind of love that I think both Matt and Karen are looking for, that kind of family love, is because Foggy's one of the only ones 
who consistently has had that love in his life and he knows what it's like. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's why Foggy is so central to their little family. I love that. I love that description of it. And and I couldn't agree more. And and it's interesting that you also mentioned his own family, because I think what, what Foggy has is sort of like he has love to spare, in a sense, like uh, he gets sort of his injection of normalcy from his upbringing and his background and everything. And when things kind of get a little bit crazy for for Matt and to it, to a great extent, Karen as well. Foggy kind of has, he's got like a buffer of like just extra <laughs> sort of love and stability to give. But I also love with, with Foggy that even he has such a solid arc uh, over these three seasons and including Defenders too, where he, in his relationship with Matt, he grows into also a more kind of a secure presence but also someone who is sort of like has a better sense of, of himself and when and where his life is going and becomes it is able to become an even better friend for Matt along the way. And I, I think that's that's kind of uh, that's really nice, too. I think Foggy is one of my favorite characters in the series. Um, Matt and Karen, as I wrote, uh, he really shines in season three. And I love that because one thing is he starts in a very um, rocky position with Matt. Like, of course, they are best friends and all this. But Matt is lying to him. And you see, like, his reaction to their double being not that good. And as the series goes on, he, he is changing. And he is also stepping out of the shadow format. And it all pays off so well in season three, mm-hmm. where, where you see him being his own person. But now that he can sustain on his own, he is also allowed to give more moral support to both Matt and Karen. And they desperately needed that because... They love being idiots. So I really, really, really think Foggy was one of the characters that shined the most in season three because of that. And I love that they let him just breathe and, and be his own at the end. And like all the conflict he had with Matt, it ended up paying off so well. I love that relationship. I really do. Yeah. It's interesting also with Foggy having such a long history in the comics. Like Foggy uh, has been written so many different ways. Uh, I know this is a point people usually make more when it comes to Karen, who has really been kind of almost a, a completely different character from one era to another. But with Foggy too, he's been everything from sort of a kind of a, you know, nerdy sidekick comic relief type of character to some extent. I mean, during the Frank Miller era, still sort of a comic relief character. There's been that risk of him being sort of a bumbling fool kind of kind of character. And then when you look maybe at the Bendis run, which came later, he's very much um, in Matt's inner circle and they're equals. And he's, you know, he's being supportive of Matt in a way that we recognize from from the show. I mean, having looked at all these different ways Foggy's been handled in the comics, it was a relief to see how well they handled him in the show and and how they managed to sort of borrow from different eras of Foggy to make this perfect sort of composite of a character that really works for this for this show. I just, I agree with you so much. It would have been easy, and I think a lot of lesser filmmakers or creators would have just said, Foggy is the bumbling sidekick, end of story. And they certainly did not. I also find it kind of hilarious that they established in season one that apparently Foggy's really good in bed. That just (laughs) kind of cracked me up. And I think that took Foggy in a direction we weren't expecting. One of my favorite things about the way Foggy was written in this series is that all too often, the sidekicks on superhero shows 
are portrayed as if they do nothing all day but sit around and wait for the superhero to call on them. And they do not do that with Foggy. Foggy has his own life and his own, I guess, destiny sounds a little corny, but he does. He has his own purpose in life. Does he work with Matt a lot? Does he consider Matt to be very close? And does he want to go forward in his life with Matt? Absolutely. But Matt is not his entire life. And I love that. He also challenges Matt. Um, and in in that sense, it's sort of like, I mean, speaking of family earlier, but to a great degree, Matt's and Foggy's friendship to me, because it is so complicated, but still lasts through all these crises, it's more like they're brothers almost, in a sense that they have a lot of differences. They're not even that similar in temperament or character, really, but they have a bond that is sort of defies all of their differences and really glues them together in a sense that, as you say, Foggy is not just, you know, laying down and, and, and letting Matt set all the parameters of their friendship. It's really sort of a, a back and forth and a way in which they challenge each other. And I think that's, um, he, he took a lot of heat for that. I know for, from a lot of fans during season one, but I think they both kind of grow and it ends up being just working out so well. So how about uh, another, um, I mentioned earlier that Foggy has been written in very, very different ways uh, in the comics. And another character who definitely fits that description is Karen, (laughs) Uh, who I guess uh, we're not going to go too deeply into Karen uh, as a love interest, as as that was covered last week. But Karen is someone that I feel was kind of reinvented for this show as a character. And also just like Foggy, she really does get her own arc and her own sort of reason for being. And she's much more than just like a a love interest for, for Matt. I agree. And the fact that season three happened and Matt and Karen never picked up their romantic relationship, it didn't happen. And uh, I think that's because it would not have worked in the story that they were telling at all, but it, it, it wasn't necessary it was totally fine for them to come back to a place where they trusted each other and were friends again. I love Karen's tenacity. I love the fact that once she kind of sinks her teeth into a story, she is not going to let go. Even though she puts herself in harm's way, she often puts other people in harm's way. She just can't let go of something. And that ties in so perfectly for the career choices she makes. First, working at Nelson Murdoch, and then going off and becoming an investigative journalist, and then coming back to Nelson Murdoch and Paige, that drive is so exciting to see on screen. Yeah. And and also, I, th- I love how her, that tenacity that she's got, it, it's one of the things that contributes to kind of putting Matt and her at odds a lot of the time, even though they are so similar in that way. It's one of the things that that really uh, they have so much in common in terms of like, you know, being like a dog with a bone and not wanting to let go and being sort of obsessively, passionately involved in whatever sort of ill they're trying to rid the world of or, you know, whatever mystery they're trying to figure out. Uh, But at the same time, it's sort of like they, they don't fully understand that the other person is similar in the exact same way. And I guess especially for Karen, it takes a while for her to learn about, you know, Matt being Daredevil. Uh, but still, I, I enjoy how how similar they are and how that at the same time is what kind of one of the things that contributes to making their, their relationship kind of kind of complicated. I love most of my thoughts on Karen on last week's episode, so I'll go very briefly over things. Uh, I'm mostly really, really grateful that they decided to 
I say modernize her character a little bit because I'm not the biggest Karen fan in the comics, but I actually really, really enjoy Karen in the show. But like Christine was saying, I, I really like the relationship we, she has with Matt and them being like super similar despite coming from very different places and having a, I will say, a different process of thought. But, but I really like their relationship as a trio with a foggy Matt and Karen that the small family unit is awesome and I love how Foggy pulls both Matt and Karen back because they end up doing a lot of stuff on the side but I also like how they influence each other I will say more so Karen and Matt than the other way around for some reason but you can see that in season 3 and season 2 that Karen at some point says something to Matt and he doesn't react at the moment but but you can see that thought going in his head for a long time eventually it tends to pay off um like in season two when they were talking about frank and that seems to change his stance on frank a little bit later on Mm -hmm. but also what she tells him uh during the crypt and that's also what what he recognized uh at the end in the church talk so yeah they have a very interesting dynamic, and I really hope we get to see them again, all three of them together and working, yeah. because we finally had them all in a good place. Now I want to see them working together. Yeah. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And, you know, you were talking about how they're similar. I love the fact that they're similar, but it takes both of them a while to figure it out. Uh, One of my favorite moments in season three is when Foggy says to Karen, don't turn into mad on me. And if you look at the the look on her face, you realize she hadn't even considered that. She's like, holy crap, <laughs> I am kind of turning into Matt here. So it, it's it's fun that they are not necessarily very self-aware when it comes to that aspect of their own personalities. That is very, very true. So uh, maybe we'll also just briefly cover Claire, who uh, was based on, I guess, uh, you could say two different characters in the comics that were sort of like the Night Nurse and Claire Temple, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, but have uh, have been really like two separate characters coming together as one character. And I mean, for all intents and purposes, a, a new character in, in Claire and the show. And uh, she is interesting for many reasons. And she's actually one of the, I have to say, one of the characters I relate to the most on a, on a sort of personal level. In the way she deals with Matt, like she's sort of this everyday person character who like keeps him grounded and and reminds him of like sort of the the real world outside of his whatever quest he's on. Uh, But it's interesting that she is like sort of the first one to learn about. Well, I mean, she meets him as Daredevil before he even is Daredevil. He's just a man in black. But she gets to know some of his more like intimate secrets about you know his senses and and what he does and he's his vigilante and she doesn't even know his name initially of course calling him you know michael which is interesting because of of course that's funny because it's uh, matt's middle name in the comics and uh, how she becomes sort of a, a, a very quickly a friend and confidant and and more <laughs> briefly uh and um how she gets to know this part of him that's unknown for a long time to foggy and karen uh, I find interesting, and it's great that we have that as an audience to sort of through these other characters, we can kind of we can learn more about Matt and what drives him. 
Yeah, I agree with you with I, I feel the same way about Clara that I think out of all the characters in the show, she's the one I relate to the most. I could see myself making many of the same choices that she made, uh, being the I will help you, I will be there. And at this point, I'm out because this just got way too weird and I can't handle it. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoy the way that she's not afraid to tell him straight up when he's being an idiot. She just, she says it like it is. I very much enjoy Claire's arc in this show. I love when she quits her job. I I love that that is a, that the hospital crossed a line that she's just not willing to go. Um, That when her friend is killed and they want to cover it up, she's out. She can't, she will not be involved in that. I have to say, I am not as thrilled with some of the things that some of the choices Claire made in other shows I found kind of weird and didn't make sense, especially because on this show, I feel like I really understood her and I understand where she's coming from. And I love the conversation that she has with Matt in season two on the roof of the hospital. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I felt her so much in that scene. <laughs> Claire is just great with, with Matt from season one to season two. And I think, because I already talked about Claire plenty on last week's episode, I think for me, the biggest disappointment with Claire is that she didn't appear in season three. And I get it because we had a lot of characters and a lot of stuff going on in season three. But we have that a small scene with um, Luke and Claire and Foggy and of Defenders where they, like, Claire and Foggy are mourning uh, Matt because they were close from season two. Uh, they knew each other and they had helped each other. And, and the fact, like, we didn't even get to see a little bit of Claire's reaction to Matt being alive, that, that was sad for me. Especially, like, it would have been nice to see Foggy, Claire, and Matt just, like, reunite. Yeah, um, she was a great mentor for him too. So personally, I will have like also for her to meet uh, Maggie, especially yeah. since they are the ones that nurse um, Matt back to health all the time. You know, they they share that trait. But yeah, uh, I think Claire is great, and her relationship with Matt was was awesome. Even the romantic one. Do I prefer them as friends? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, that actually provides a great segue uh, for us. <laughs> Sam, since you mentioned that Claire is sort of a mentor role, uh, because we also have some of those characters that we wanted to talk about that that are more of a different generation than Matt in, in all of these cases, and also are more more mentors than friends uh, and people that he um, relies on. And uh, the first one that comes to mind is uh, Father Lantham, who is with us throughout most of the show. Father Lantham. I love this character. He is a major reason why my favorite episode in season one is Speak of the Devil. The Father Lantham discussion with Matt about, do you believe in the devil, Father? Do you believe he walks among us? That is such a fantastic scene. It gives me chills just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And later, it's Father Lantum who plants the idea in Matt's mind to wear a devil suit. It's his conversation with him saying that uh, God allowed the devil to fall from grace so that he would be a symbol to warn the unbelievers to tread the path of the righteous. So I, I love that about him. I was a little bit 
confused. I think a lot of us might have been between the kind of retconning they did between season one and season three, mm-hmm. where if you watch season one, it really sounds as if Father Lantum is meeting Matt for the first time, the way he talks to him and says, hey, you're you're battling Jack's boy, aren't you? A lot of us know about what happened to battling Jack and his son. And then in season three, it's kidding. I raised you at the orphanage. Um, <laughs> but I still very much enjoyed how present he was in season three as well. And finding out that he had mentored Matt when he was young and helped him deal with the grief over being blind. And correct me if I'm wrong, Christine, I am not a comics expert. I have not read as much as a lot of people. Um, I remember meeting Father Lantum in Runaways. He was a character in that. But was he ever in the Daredevil comics? Um, no. Uh, That's no, what he I was thought. Never, he was never in the comics. And then if you look at the current run, I mean, you sort of have other kind of religious figures show up, but but not, no, Father Lantum was new uh, to Daredevil um, with the show. So... And I agree with you about, I think that long, epi- or a long conversation they have about the devil uh, in episode eight of season one is amazing. And I love that. And I know they've also talked about how, how hard it was to get kind of approval to have that scene run for as long as it did. But it is such an amazing, long scene with a, you know, a deep conversation about really sort of important kind of universally human things and good and evil and everything. And, and uh, I, I love that. And I also I agree about the retconning in season three was sort of a surprise to a lot of people, but it still it still kind of worked. <laughs> Uh, in a way, it was sort of like, oh, okay, so yeah, that's an obvious retcon, but okay, okay, we'll 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 buy that. And it also becomes sort of, especially when you look at a character like Stick, who is someone who is kind of in Matt's life, you know, uh, and has a huge impact, and then leaves him kind of traumatized uh, by his absence. And it's good to know that Matt has had other adults around him who have provided a more stable environment and that Father Lantern was one of those people. And it, it's, it, it feels good to know that Matt had that to some extent. Yeah. He was, a, like you said, that he wasn't in the coming. So he was one of the show greatest addition, I will say, because Father Lantern is just great from the very beginning, like Christian said. And I actually like the recon because Matt is a very... He he's very personal, like keeping his information secret and everything. And the recon actually makes it a little bit better why he's so trusting of him. Like it makes mm-hmm. sense. Like oh yeah, they he's the one that took care of him in the orphanage. Oh, that that makes sense. And especially because he grew up in the orphanage, you will have figured that he had some close adults there. You know, so it, it is good that we end up seeing. Um, Father Lantern take that role later on. I just wish they had thought of that back in season one so that we didn't have a record at all. Yeah. But he is just great. He I, I love that he's so very quirky and he is also um not afraid to call out Matt's bullshit. <laughs> and he does so much so many times and just laughing. And yeah. but he's also I would say very Catholic priest. <laughs> Because he's like I, I keep remembering that um, when he's talking with Karen that he's uh, like live the life or something. He's quoting the the uh, Beatles and she's like, "Is that from the Bible?" And no, it's just the Beatles. <laughs> and and like a Catholic priest seems to be a little bit um, at least where I come from, they they were always a, a little bit playful 
I will say. So they capture that. And, and uh, as somebody who was grow up, like, grew up as, as Catholic, um, that was nice just to see them handling that part of the story that well. So, yeah, I really appreciate Father Lantern. Yeah, I mean, he's a very grounded character, you know. He's yes. a, even though he he has all these th- all of these things to say about God and the devil and all of these sort of religious themes, it's also very. I mean, he lives in Hell's Kitchen. He's surrounded by all of this stuff and all these everyday things, and he's got his you know latte machine or like espresso maker. Um, yeah, so he feels like a very sort of um, real and relatable person yes. it's easy for someone who's like a member of the clergy to just be sort of an authority figure whereas he is so much more uh to um to matt but um how how do we feel about stick because he's someone that people have a lot of different opinions on and he was both sort of a lifesaver to matt but also well let's call it you know borderline abusive or maybe even crosses the line into abusive yeah i love stick what I love about Stick is that he is a complete jerk until he's not. And yeah. a, a lot of times with characters like that, it's the opposite. You know, the mentors are fantastic until they're a jerk. No, no, not Stick. And uh, of course, I don't think I will ever be able to accept anyone but Scott Glenn in that role because he definitely has that abrasive personality that lends itself so well to this character. Yeah, Stick, he talks the talk, and he you think for a long time that he walks the walk until you realize not exactly, until you yeah. realize that, yes, he kept that paper bracelet that Matt made him when Matt was a child. Uh, when we see him have the chance to kill Electra, which he's swearing he's going to do, and then he pauses, he can't do it. So I, I love the fact that he is so adamant about his rules, about you are going to cut yourself off from humanity, you are going to stand apart, you are not going to make connections, and yet he cannot help doing it himself. Yeah. So uh, it, it makes him much more interesting to see that he has those complexities to his character. I, I agree. I think um, what's kind of sad for Matt, though, in this instance is that he has to sort of live with the grief of losing him under the circumstances that he did as a child when Stick shows up and gives him sort of a purpose and trains him and does all of this. And then Matt exposes himself emotionally in giving him this the bracelet, the, the um, wrapper. And as soon as he does that, he's punished by Stick leaving his life. And it's not until much later that he realizes that, okay, he didn't... He didn't mean it in the way that it must have seemed to Matt at the time, which must have been very traumatic and heartbreaking. And uh, and that was something that he had to live with for many, many years until Stick comes into his life again. So, I, I mean, I can only imagine the kind of impact that that would have had on Matt. And it's something, their relationship uh, in this show, especially something I've thought a lot about, because uh, I wonder how much of Matt's sort of fear of ex- exposing himself um, not just talking about his his powers, but making himself available emotionally fully so that he can actually befriend other people. Um, and how much of that was sort of kind of ruined by Stick leaving the way that he did. Because that's that was, it actually reminds me of something uh, that Maggie talks about in season three, where she talks about how Matt would have these nightmares and cry, and she would rush to his bedside until the one time she didn't, and he would never cry again. 
And I think with Stick, too, that was sort of like he learned not to open himself up to affection in a way when when he did and Stick left. So I think he's really had a rough time of doing sort of human things and being punished for them. Um, And I think that explains a lot of his, you know, insecurities and his sort of, um, you know, neuroses as an adult. Well, yeah, Stick is an asshole. Sorry about the war, but he is. Uh, but I love him. He's so much fun as a character. But one can argue that the way he treated both Electra and Matt was really messed up, and he caused a lot of damage for both of them. And like <laughs> a lot of what happened in Defenders and part of season two was definitely his fault, or in part his fault, because he molded Electra into that child soldier that ended up becoming a little bit of a psychopath because of the way he raised her. Uh, and, and he tried the same with Matt. And Matt uh, does keep some of it until uh, late season three, I will say, and I can probably be young if, if we get to see him. And he says that um, in season one to Karen, actually, when, when he's like, I thought I hadn't listened to, to Stick, but um, he has a way of getting into your head. Like, even if you don't want him to. And it's just like, Stick is really smart. He knows how to control kids. And he is just not a good influence to have around. But he's such a fun character. <laughs> and I respect him in a way, too. Because he is smart. He knows what he's doing. He's really somebody you would want to have on your side if you were fighting a war against the Hand, for example. Or anybody else. But as a family member or, or as a friend... Yeah, there's probably a lot of better options, like almost everybody else. <laughs> yeah. If we look at other sort of mentor uh, figures that uh, Matt has had who have been uh, maybe better, uh, we you know wanted to make a, at least a brief mention of Ben Urich, even though he doesn't get to really be the mentor that he is in the comics, but uh, he does have sort of a, a, a kind of a very sort of strong moral presence anyway in 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 season one even though he doesn't interact with matt all that much but i think in the comics it's just kind of um worth just mentioning in the comics ben yurik has this sort of confidant role for matt and someone he can sort of you know bounce ideas off of and and who he can trust and um not at all like a father figure at we're so, but I mean, in, in terms of um, sort of his work as Daredevil, uh, Ben Urich is, is sort of this um, very influential character, at least for several of the, the runs of the comic. And I feel like if TV show Ben had not been so viciously murdered, I think he would have figured out who Daredevil was pretty quickly. Yeah. I, I definitely get that sense, but we'll never find out. Thanks, Wilson Fisk. <laughs> Wilson Fisk is such an asshole. Uh, but speaking of finding out secrets, uh, Maggie, of course, um, this huge character in season three and very important to Matt, more so than he knows at first, of course. So going into the show, I knew who Sister Maggie was in the comics, but I've also seen that this show wisely, I think, and a lot of Marvel on screen as well wisely does this. They don't treat the comics like a Bible. They treat it as a jumping off point. So I knew that in the comics, Maggie was Matt's mother and he found out. But 
I wasn't entirely sure they were going to do that in the show. So when it was revealed in the show, I was like, oh, okay, they're doing that where, you know, the other people on my couch were going, what? Which was kind of funny. But I do like the way that they made Maggie, at least in terms of the comics that I read, she was a very dear, sweet, motherly figure. I don't know if maybe in other comics she was different, but the ones I read, um, she was very caring and kind and loving. And I like this sassy, back-talking, take-no-prisoners Maggie that we got to see in the show. I loved her whole speech to Matt about, you know, those little coward orphans out there are disabled worse than you, and they're trying to make something of themselves, those little cowards. You know, I, I loved her kind of trying to slap him back to his senses and uh, try to get him to stop being so self-pitying. I also like that her faith is extremely important to her, that she talks about getting that calling, and she talks about how she has been called to help, that Love and redemption are her sales pitch. It's very much a part of who she is. And it was so heartwarming at the end of season three to see that she was going to take the mantle from the recently fallen Father Lantum and be Matt's spiritual advisor. I loved that. Yeah, I, I also love how she, uh, again, we, we, you know, we always kind of come back to this sort of idea of Matt kind of needing to be challenged in different ways and having people who not just accept everything that he says, but kind of can kind of, you know, throw the ball back at him and, and be kind of like, well, how about thinking about it this way? And, and if he's stuck in a particular pattern, there's, you know, we have all these other characters that are able to show him a different way of thinking about things. And she is definitely that kind of character where she's, she's caring. She is maternal. And this is, I mean, even before we learned that uh, she's his mother, I mean, again, like you, I knew from the comics that she, she was his mother in the comics, but, but I wasn't sure that they were going to stick with that. And they kind of kept left it open, um, which I think was a good idea. Um, and, um, but she, she does have that sort of maternal, instinct, whether she's his mother or not. Uh, and, and I mean, even if she hadn't been, they, they still have this history together of, of him growing up under her care. But at the same time, she's not going to let him pity himself. And she's not going to let him just sort of be stuck in his very, you know, negative and sort of this very detrimental thought pattern that he's stuck in for the first couple of episodes of, of season three. And she becomes this sort of, um, you know, theological and, and also philosophical sparring partner for him that I really enjoy her in, in that role. I really love Sister Maggie. She's a savage, to be honest. I mean, and that's part of why I love her, because she's so wrong with him. And like you all said, she doesn't let him just uh, wallow in some pity. But she also reminds me a lot of, of Karen, actually, and in, in, in a funny way, I will say, because she's a complicated character and she has a complicated relationship with Matt in that, yes, she's very upfront with him at the beginning of season three, but that's kind of while they are in the same level of moral ground, well, you know, well, well, he doesn't know that She's actually the mother that abandoned him. After that, she's she's she actually has a hard time to be upfront with him because you know I feel like she doesn't feel like she has a right to tell him not to do things or not to be this way when she wasn't there for him really, and she abandoned him and all that. And and that reminds me a little bit of how Karen is 
in the sense that when she feels like she has a right to do something, she will go all the way and tell you to fuck off. Um, but then when, when things change and she's actually the one below it, she has a bit of a hard time doing that. And you can see that when like the scene that is after the creep one, when she's like, oh, here's your t-shirt. And, and, and Maddie's just like scoffing at her, like, <laughs> go away, you know. And she she actually doesn't say anything to him. That she, she kind of knows that she doesn't get to do it then. Uh, but then when Matt finally comes and he's like, okay, okay, I, I forgive you. I know, like, it's complicated and all that. And then she's like more willing and open to be like her old self, you you still can say like their relationship's not completely amended, but she's definitely more back to the <laughs> self that was willing to tell him to fuck up and and be uh, an adult. Yeah, she yeah, it's interesting how she, as he says, she loses kind of her moral high ground after he finds out, and then mm-hmm. they kind of go back. They have to sort of reevaluate their entire relationship and how they, you know, at the end how they find each other again. And it would be lovely to be able to reunite them again too <laughs> in yes. the future, um, and uh, and have her come back because I think uh, there's much more to explore there that I think could be very interesting. But speaking of complicated relationships, um, we also have um, a couple of characters who feature very prominently in season two, Electra and um, Frank Castle, which I kind of mention in in one breath here, not because they're they're uh, uh, they have many differences as, as characters and very very different relationships to Matt. Obviously, of course, Electra especially has a, a history with Matt and has also the the sort of romantic dimension that you talked about last week that we're not going to maybe talk too much about. About here, but they have that connection and and attachment to each other. But they also have very different views on how to the role of violence, really, in in what they do and and what the the end goal is. Where um, where Matt is sort of much more. Uh, I mean, both sort of grounded in his religion is, of course, one part of it, but he's very sort of resistant to taking violence too far into killing. Um, and of course, with Frank, it's the same thing. He is, you know, someone who doesn't really mind um, shooting some bad bad guys for, you know, uh, what he sees as an overarching moral good. But they're interesting in that they both sort of challenge Matt's morality in, in different ways. What do you guys think? You know, Electra. I find it so fascinating uh, that both Matt and Electra, through the entirety of the show, whenever they're on it, they are, they're basically in the middle of an identity crisis. And there is so much of Matt and Electra's relationship, and I don't mean just romantic, I just mean in their interactions, period. So much of their relationship is bound up in how much of you is inherently you and cannot be changed and how much of it is choice. And Electra seems to lean really into the, I am who I am because I always was this person. And Matt Mm -hmm. seems to really lean into the, you make choices. And they play with it. They go back and forth. There are times when Matt is very bitterly kind of declares that, this is who he is and that's it. And there are times when Electra is thinking, maybe I can choose to do something different. Maybe I can be someone different. But that seems to be the point of contention between the two of them that they're always struggling with. And they'll probably never 100% solve it, which is great for us because it makes for Mm -hmm. fantastic drama. 
that is actually one of the big themes of, of um, season two, where it's Matt who is telling Electra that like, like you are not bound by some mythology of who you are. Like you can choose to be whoever. But at the same time, when you get into season three and he's stuck in his sort of like, I am Daredevil, you know? <laughs> this, uh, where he's got this, uh, that's the only part of his sort of persona that, that um, remains after everything else has been sort of shedded. Which is interesting because in season two, he's the one who who is all about the you know choices and, and stuff. And if you look at someone like like Frank, he seems very much to have been rather than having been the same person all along. He's someone who has been become someone else and someone new and much more vicious after having had something extremely traumatic happen to him. He's sort of the good guy turned bad guy or at least you know anti-hero or whatever whatever you want to call it so it's interesting how they have different routes to becoming who they are um and and how they view that but even frank has this sort of like seems to me this view of sort of this is my destiny now like this happened to me nothing else in life matters beyond this point except for sort of vengeance and and yeah being being whatever it is the punisher is uh to him for me, the biggest surprise of season two is the, the thing that blew me away because I simply was not expecting it was the humanizing of Frank Castle, of seeing Frank as a complete human being and not a killing machine. That was something I was not expecting having just met him sporadically in the comics, something I definitely wasn't expecting after seeing a couple of the films that were made about him. You get to know him as a human as a person. And I really think of him more as Frank Castle and less as the Punisher because of how they introduced him in season two. Um, I was surprised, I will say, by how Frank was introduced in season two. Well, not so much because at the beginning, he's very much the, the Punisher. Uh, you know, like he's shooting at uh, the guy they are defending and at Karen just like a maniac and you see him like the hooks he did with the Mexican cartel and everything. So yeah, that's very much a punisher. But I was surprised the way they, they went with him just like you were, uh, Christina. Because I too was familiar with him from the um, crossovers he had with the Avengers. And I was used to these very callous, um, very murdery Frank Castle. And I was like, oh, this is kind of new. This is nice. It that it lets you see more of the character and it gives it a, a bit more of that. Uh, at least for me, it did. But I also like was expecting him to go back um, his way. And I know, I know that I think at the end of season two of The Punisher, he did. So, you know, Frank Castle is The Punisher, so it is. But I love his relationship with Matt because he is what Matt could be if he goes too far. And that's, I think, a painful reminder. Like, yeah. You, you can become like this. Um, or Fran, but is also like a good person. So so it's this interesting relationship where he's like mad trying kind of to get him back on the other, like back to the good side. And, and Frank is sort of like challenging him, but also don't really want him to go into like turn to him. So they are weird and they are funny that way. I like it. Yeah. And 
Electra, uh, again, I talk about her, but now that we are to, like, we talk about the stick, I just love that relationship between uh, Electra, Stig, and, and Matt. It's so complicated. It's like just like Foggy, Karen, and Matt are like this small happy unit. Uh, then Stig, Matt, and Electra are this like dysfunctional family that you're like, what, what, what is going on here? But it's very interesting because you have Stig, who obviously has the most influence on Electra. And you have Electra that is trying to struggle against that influence. Um, very much fans to Matt. Uh, but you also have Matt that is kind of trying to just make his stick a little bit more uh, less of an asshole. It doesn't work, but it does work <laughs> with Electra. Uh, and I really dislike the Panthers in a way because of how they did her there. Because you see an at the end of season two, Electra, who has come to understand Matt better. Uh, you see in the conversation before the final fight that she understands where, where Matt is coming from. Like she's calling him out when he's saying, like, let's go to Paris and escape it and, and be happy somewhere else. And she's like, but you love New York and, and you love the people here and you actually love being their devil, you know. And she is trying to change herself too. Like you see her saying, like, oh, I finally know what it is to be good uh, yeah. which is something that she never expected to be and then you have defenders and you have everything go back to where it was before I wish we could see a new season where we actually see Electra like break off the influence from Stig and be her own person it's interesting you mentioned that the final scene that they have together, like before they before they go onto the roof, because that scene just totally broke me. And it's it, it's interesting because it for me, Electra is sort of the hero of that conversation. But I was so devastated by Matt's side of it uh, because for me, like whenever there's any sort of suggestion that that Matt views his entire life as Matt Murdock as just sort of as just this uh, charade, basically. That really gets to me, and it's really something that I I just don't want to see. And so where he sort of just is, looks like he's ready to just shed his entire, this Matt Murdock skin and just go away and like leave everything. And he's so sick with, with this sort of like the facade of Matt Murdock. And she is the one who challenges him on that. So I think Electra's side of that conversation and that scene is is excellent. And it's like, it's a real hero moment for Electra to be like, to, to be able to look at him and and kind of call him out on his bullshit in a sense, because she's like, like she finally realizes like, like all season long, she's been trying to pull him in this one direction uh, and pull him away. And in a sense, the stick does too, like pull him away from sort of his ordinary life. But in the end, she's the one who, to him, kind of defends his ordinary life. And that that also means something to him, that she's the one who has to remind him of that. That's interesting, because I saw that scene completely differently. <laughs> right? <laughs> what? I, yeah, when when I saw that scene, first of all, as a viewer, as soon as he said, what if wherever you run, I run with you, mm -hmm. I yelled out, she's going to die. Like I knew that yeah. immediately. Um, <laughs> but beyond that, when when I saw that scene, I got the feeling that they both fully expected not to survive and they were indulging in a bit of fantasy. That's the way that that I saw it, that Matt was thinking and Electra both were thinking, we're not going to make it out of here. And they had a little moment of what if, 
you know, and so they could kind of hold on to something in their hearts as they were going to their death. That is the way I saw that scene. So it's, it's, I think it speaks to the complexity of this show that we could both see that scene and see different things in it. I agree. And that scene is just so good. Yeah, but of course he's thinking that they might both die. Yeah. I've been trying to like, for my own sake, to like reevaluate that scene so many times. It's always interesting to hear what other people have to say about it, because it's interesting when you look at it so differently. But um, uh, but yeah, it's still one I struggle with. My impression of that scene was a little bit different from both sides, because it, it, I see it as Matt has blew up his uh, whole uh, Matt Murdock life. Like, Karen was mad with him, Foggy was mad with him, there was no more uh, Nelson and Murdoch. I, I feel like there wasn't much for him to grasp on on that side, so I see that scene as Matt being desperate to grab onto something uh, that can bring him some happiness. And at that moment, the only thing he could think of was Electra and uh, his Daredevil side, so it was for me less of him just uh, giving. Um, F to Matt Murdock and more like uh, th- there's nothing for me there anymore at least that's how it felt to me well before we uh, wrap this up we need to cover um, some of the big baddies <laughs> and um, specifically well we'll start with of course uh, the obvious one uh, Wilson Fisk uh, who challenges both Matt and Daredevil in, in various ways um, obviously and uh, I have to say of course we we know Vincent D'Onofrio is wonderful as as Fisk I cannot imagine a better actor to play him and I love how much he loves this character but I also I love how they you know he's not a one note villain he's someone who also has a lot of complexity to him and i have to say like one of my favorite episodes actually of season one is the one that i think is episode seven i want to say the one where that's um uh that's about where you they cover his childhood and how he murdered his father and everything and i mean not only was that you know child actor whose name i can't remember uh wonderful but it was so it's such a fantastic episode it's such a fantastic backstory for for Fisk. I really love that. But then, of course, he, you know, grows up and goes on to being this character who is able to not only challenge Daredevil physically, but also challenge everything in Matt's life in such an intricate way. Something that the the creators managed to do multiple times, which just is so fantastic, is they managed to make you feel sympathy for Wilson Fisk. And in the very next scene, they show him doing something monstrous. Uh, They did it in season one with the removal of someone's head with the car door. And they did it in season three after he visits the uh, Esther Falb, the Holocaust survivor. And he shows a deep humanity in letting her keep the painting and realizing that that's what Vanessa wanted. And then it turns into the give me your jacket scene. They do such a wonderful job with that where you almost feel angry at yourself. It's like, God damn it, I cannot believe I was feeling something for this guy. He's a monster. And of course, that's the whole point is he's a human. He's not a monster. None of these characters are monsters. Uh, even the the worst villains who do the worst things are human. Mm-hmm. Uh, another big baddie that uh, we could talk about. You have, of course, I mean, the hand and everyone connected to that side of the story who are also like a big challenge for Matt um, in both 
season one and season in season two, and uh, who um, are more of a mysterious threat, I guess. Matt is like as a character is kind of grounded, uh, and he has this worldview where it's sort of like people don't rise from the dead. Uh, you know, uh, you don't have mysterious <laughs> sort of ninja, phantom um, ninjas, and, and mysterious wars and everything that Stick's been talking about. While he was growing up, he doesn't really like he takes that on as um, and he looks at it as sort of a, you know, a more in a more level headed way than maybe all of these sort of mysterious overtones would suggest. Um, so, of course, we do have all of that that threat. We also, of course, in season three have Dex, who is a very sort of physical threat for Matt and who has also had this huge role in the comics as a sort of recurring a uh, madman who can go toe to toe with Daredevil and be a real, uh, a real difficult villain for him to go up against. So, and again, like we mentioned with Fisk, he's also given a very interesting backstory. So, Dex, I, I had run across uh, Bullseye in the comics a couple of times. I mean, come on, in the comics, he kills anyone that Matt ever loved, basically, and. Yeah. Uh, I was really impressed with what they did on screen because in the comics, first of all, you can do things in comics that absolutely 100% work in comics and they will not work on the screen and vice versa. They're two different mediums. And I remember being a little bit worried when they were going to introduce Bullseye, even though everyone was saying, how can you have Daredevil without Bullseye? We have to have Bullseye because in the comics, Bullseye is really wackadoodle. He is over the top. He is larger than life, and I was having a hard time trying to figure out how they were going to put that on the screen. I mean, for God's sake, he killed someone by throwing a poodle at them, okay? So it's like, how are they going to make this a believable, grounded character? And they managed to do it. And the fact that they managed to do it by getting into Dex's head and getting into Dex's psyche and learning about his mental illness, and then having Fisk manipulate him. And I think it's so interesting that in this show, Fisk is a master manipulator. He manipulates Matt. He manipulates Karen. He definitely manipulates Dex. Dex is not a manipulator. Dex gets manipulated by Fisk and by Matt. Matt completely manipulates him in the end. So I was so thrilled to see how they managed, once again, to take a character that I was concerned with about how they're going to make it work, and they made it work, and they made me believe him. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, couldn't agree more. And I think it's interesting also when you mention how Matt manipulates him, because that's something that one common criticism of, of Daredevil in many of the runs of the comics and even in this show is that he is often given this role of sort of reacting to things and not being maybe as proactive as he could be. But it's interesting that Dex is someone who, when he gets to the end and he sort of learns about Dex's backstory and what Fisk has done to him, how he's able to use that to his advantage, is also kind of, it's a great moment for Matt. He gets to be in the driver's seat and be someone who dictates the terms and not just be some, be this character who is reacting to everything that is, you know, nominally outside his control. Dex is so cool. Like, I also knew Bullseye from the movie and a bit from the comics. And, and like, I was a bit worried how they were going to adapt it because of, uh, I'm not the biggest fan of, of the previous Bullseye from the um, movies. <laughs> but they actually did such a good job with him and his backstory. Oh, my God. Like, that was one of my favorite parts of season three because he's crazy. 
we know he's crazy and we see him like from the very introduction when he was just shooting all these people and coming in like the Punisher. I actually thought it was the Punisher at first. But then you see his backstory and you see like how he became this monster and how he actually struggles a lot to be um, a better person, like the person that his um, therapist wanted him to be. And he sort of gets there, but then, you know, Fist comes in and ruins everything for him. Yeah. Um, but you can sympathize with him. And, and that's something that I prized him for because I didn't feel like, like I had to sympathize with, with his murder or anything, but I did feel for him. Like, uh, I wish things had gone better for him. But you also kind of hate him on the, like, man, you're wacko. What are you doing? And he's creepy. But you also can relate a little bit to his struggle, especially, like, with mental health. Um, and that's one of the things they handle really well in season three, because they, ha- they have, you know, the borderline and all the stuff with um, Dex. But they also had, like, postpartum depression with Maggie. And I feel like they did it very well the writing for all that and I really appreciate what they did with Dax. Really liking and I want to see him fulfill a small side because we mm-hmm. season 3 was basically his introduction a very good one we now have to see yeah. him being all it's crazy. his origin story. <laughs> yeah, his origin. <laughs> yeah, so now we want to see him come back and, and uh, see what he becomes and hopefully we'll get that and we'll keep campaigning for that but I think yes. that um uh, this is a good point for us to um, sort of wrap this up and um, uh, also ask you guys, uh, our listeners, if um, if there are any characters you would like to, that you missed that we should have mentioned and we didn't, or because um, you never know, we might, you know, get to do a second episode or, you know, maybe some of the other supporting characters we didn't mention this time around. So please, um, you know, comment and uh, get in touch with us. And as always, you can, um, you know, we are at um, SaveDaredevil.com. If you want to go to our website, we are on all the social media, almost. Uh, We are Renew Daredevil on Twitter. We are Save Daredevil pretty much everywhere else, including Facebook, uh, YouTube, Instagram, so on. Um, So you know where to find us. And I think that's it for today. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Talk Daredevil, the official podcast of the Save Daredevil campaign. For more information on Save Daredevil, please visit our website at savedaredevil.com. Remember, Murdoch's always get back up.